Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 329. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And first of all, welcome to May. It feels like the official start of spring here in Colorado. And May is a very special month for us this month on the podcast. For those of you who follow me on Instagram, you may have already seen the news. Uh, But I am very excited to be celebrating all things motherhood this May with a special series here on the podcast because I myself am expecting, Brad the Boo and I are expecting our first child uh, this September, late September, and we are simply over the moon and delighted, and I'm so excited to finally celebrate the news with you all here. Uh, As podcast listeners, I feel like you all know me better than anyone, so... It's been hard to keep this a secret as long as we have, but we are just so excited and so delighted. Now, don't worry. This is not about to turn into a mommy blog situation. I will not be talking only and exclusively about motherhood here on the podcast or in Bossed Up's world more broadly, but to celebrate uh, this exciting new chapter uh, that we're on the precipice of and to celebrate Mother's Day, which is happening just a what month, a week or two away from now. I am really excited to be interviewing some fantastic guests on the podcast this month uh, on the topic of what moms have been going through lately, uh, the changing nature of the American family unit, and basically issues affecting working mothers. Now, Nicole Rogers is a longtime friend of mine who I'm delighted to introduce y'all to. She's been an early supporter of Bossed Up, an advisory board member since the very beginning. Uh, She also runs a think tank, Family Story, which I'll tell you more about in a minute, but basically studies the intersection of the changing family unit and American public policy that very much affects all of us. And today I had her on actually to talk about female friendships because she penned this great op-ed that went viral in WBUR just a month or two ago now, uh, all about being in the company of women. It's subtitled, The Pandemic Void Only My Girlfriends Can Fill. So today we're not talking explicitly about motherhood by any means. We're talking about female friendships and how, I don't know, tricky it can be to maintain them, especially during this bizarre time we're hopefully emerging from soon, Uh, and what a luxury it can feel like friendships, female friendships can be sometimes. So the conversation spans a lot of different topics. We do talk about uh, mothers in particular and how, um, you know, maintaining female friendships as a mom can feel like a luxury we just don't have time for. (laughs) But I hope that's not the case. I hope that we all can embrace the radical act of fostering and maintaining female friendships because they do 
serve a really important and unique purpose in all of our lives. And so I'm very excited to introduce you to my friend, Nicole Sussner Rogers, who's the founder and executive director of Family Story. It's an organization founded back in 2015 to address and dismantle family privilege in America and create cultural and political strategies to advance equity for all types of families. Nicole's an entrepreneur, an author, a futurist sometimes, and an expert on the changing family who specializes in communications and research in the public interest. As a former vice president at Fenton, the nation's premier public interest communications firm, Rogers ran Fenton's branding and messaging practice for the D.C. office and was part of the education and women's practice groups. Previously, she was a Ph.D. candidate at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania studying political communication. Nicole received her undergraduate degree in social policy in a concentration in gender studies from Northwestern University. She's presented at conferences and events across the country, and her writing has really truly been published widely, including multiple times on the Washington Post opinion page and, of course, WBUR. Nicole lives with her partner, her toddler, and her two mutts in Washington, D.C., just down the street from my little flat. I used to, I remember I used to walk over to Nicole's when my internet wasn't working or when I was in need of some company, uh, and she would kindly open her home to me and let me post up on her couch while I was trying to get bossed up off the ground. So uh, she has served a she she has been such a good friend to me over the years and an advisor on top of that. She's also, by the way, the lead singer for the Harvey Sometimes, a local cover band that if you're ever in D.C., you should go check out. Nicole, welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. It's great to be with you, Emily. <laughs> it's so great to be with a Bossed Up OG who's been around <laughs> uh, since I think our, our origins, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for all the ways you've supported us over the past eight years. I just celebrated Boss Up's eighth birthday. Is that I not crazy? I saw that. I know. I can't believe it's been that long. I can't either. What a what a blast. Yeah. Um, you've done a lot well, of good. Well, I asked you. It, we have. Yeah, we have. I'm, I'm proud. <laughs> um, speaking of having impact, I <laughs> am bringing you on for in light of your latest and greatest viral sensation, which I feel like is a, a relatively commonplace scenario for your writing, uh, which was in, I think it was WBUR, right? It was. Yep. Yep. And you penned a great, a great quick read called In the Company of Women, The Pandemic Void Only My Girlfriends Can Fill. What inspired the piece? Well, it's funny. I actually, um, I have a, an old friend who I worked with when I was in my early twenties in New York, who, um, who works for BUR and she saw a tweet of mine, <laughs> believe it or not, that's how it all started. Um, I where I had, I had just tweeted something about how, when the pandemic was over, um, I wanted to, to start like a, a, a women's commune with all my girlfriends or have like a, yeah. uh, have a getaway commune experience. And, um, <laughs> she actually, she's the one who emailed me and said, you know, and I think the tweet got a lot of love and she emailed me and said, I think you're hitting on something here. I feel like a lot of people are really missing their girlfriends. Would you be up for writing something? And I said, mm. Oh, I don't really have a lot of time, but if I have time <laughs> tomorrow morning, you know, I'll see what I can do. And of course, as is always the case, you know, I, there's, there's, there's articles that I spend months on 
And, you know, I feel like six people read and this one I, you know, churned out, I kind of just, I just wrote, I turned it out in about an hour and, and it went viral. It totally did. I'm looking at the original tweet, by the way, which is worth reading. You wrote, when COVID is behind us, I'd like to spend some time living on an all-lady commune with all my girlfriends. No offense to my male partner or kids, but I'm basically desperate for lots of in-person time with other women. Is this how manifesting works? (laughs) That's right. I love that. (laughs) Yep. I was really feeling it. I mean, I'm still feeling it, but I'm at least feeling now that there's a, you know, mm-hmm. a light at the end of the tunnel with 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 seeing girlfriends again. Yeah. It's funny. I had a conversation with one of my long distance besties. Uh, I call her my pod pal for life, Bridget Todd, who I co-hosted. Of course. Yeah. Stuff mom never told you with. And, you know, there's only so many virtual happy hours or Zoom catch-ups or even phone calls that can, you know, that I think have seen us through the past 12 months. Yep. But they just don't do the trick. And I was talking with Bridget at our recent Bossed Up Summit all about this. I'm curious, have you have you found yourself, like, differing in your approach to maintaining female friendships at the start of the pandemic versus now, whatever, whatever month we're in now. Well, yeah, I mean, definitely I have, I think probably like everybody else, I started sort of, you know, the, the, when, when zoom dates and, um, you know, zoom nights with girlfriends were still a novelty. I did that, you know, I yeah. did zoom parties for people's birthdays in the early month. I did my, I, I just celebrated uh, two days ago, my second birthday in quarantine and, mm. um, you know, the Happy first birthday. one, thank you. And, and the first one I did, um, you know, the first one I had 15 friends on a zoom call and this year mm. I didn't even think of doing anything like that. I didn't want right. to do a zoom call. Right. The novelty had worn off. So, um, and I suspect that's true for many people when it was novel and when it didn't, before we understood that what we were actually facing was a pandemic that was going to keep us essentially socially isolated for, you know, well over a year. Um, I think that I think something like zoom felt like a suitable alternative. I think very quickly the limits, uh, the limits of, of, of something like zoom became clear, but I'm sure it works better for some people than others. For me, you know, it's nice and I'll take it over nothing, but it, it is, there is something about being in person with friends that um, you just can't replicate. (laughs) Totally, totally. And I think you make a good point at the start of your piece about how this is particularly and acutely problematic, this this being the whole pandemic and the, (laughs) you know, corresponding economic fallout for Women, you know, 2.5 women are out of the workforce compared to 1.8 or 2.5 million, I should say, compared to 1.8 million men exiting the workforce. And you're a you're a mom of a young toddler. Right. And I'm curious, do you find the experience is hitting women with children especially hard or just, you know, what is it about what's happening that you think is particularly affecting women? Yeah. Well, I, I I hate to say it because I I don't, it's not, I don't want to rub salt in the wounds, but I think I got very lucky in this way because I have, um, I I am lucky to have a very egalitarian partner. So I don't feel like I've been like shouldering 
you know, more of the load now right. um, since the pandemic. I think we've been very good about sort of every, every week we sort of divide and conquer on, um, you know, how to balance sort of all the childcare and work demands. But yeah. I think the reality, of course, um, for most women is that they are already typically shouldering more of the burden um, at home of all the domestic sort of things that keep families and households running, um, children and, and getting dinners on the table and all of that. And I think the additional burden, uh, you know, I think especially for women who who were sort of expected to pick up that slack while doing their jobs often remotely. And of course Mm -hmm. that's a luxury in itself. There's so many people who can't work remotely. Um, I think that the, the, I think when you really understand how deeply embedded sort of sexism is in our culture is in these kinds of moments when it's like, well, who, who actually has to sacrifice and drop out because this right. isn't all women who are losing their jobs. This is a lot of women who are dropping out because it's they're being put in a totally impossible situation. And right. you know, this is this is you know, there's 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 many exceptions. Men do a lot more than they used to do. I mean, I'm talking specifically, obviously, just of heterosexual couples here, but um, you know, in general, the burden tends to fall on women, and it's women mm. who I think are making the sacrifices. And so, I've been very lucky that that has not been my experience. But I see it all around me. I actually, this is sort of a bit of a tangent, but I, it, it was unbelievably. I was, I, you know, I'm on all these listservs for like people with young children and people in my neighborhood and you know next yeah. door and just you know all the sorts of communities online that I've joined. And there was a posting on a list serve uh just for my local neighborhood in dc and it was a um this was just literally a few days ago which is why um it's sort of top mm. of mind there's a woman posting about needing a what she referred to as a mother's helper which I, is already to, to me a strange term that seems to devalue what is actually just yeah. generally oh, like child work care and childcare, but, okay. but okay. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Um, devaluing um, weird naming convention, whatever aside, she was saying, I'm looking for a mother's helper. I don't know much about um, what they exactly can or cannot do, but I could use some help, um, particularly getting my children, my three children kind of up and out the door in the morning. Um, my husband is just not very good at it. He, um, she said he's just not particularly skilled at kind of wrangling the kids up and getting them breakfast and out the door, you know, and I need some help with that in the morning. And I just thought to myself, like, my God, not only, uh, you know, do I feel badly for this woman, but you know, just, it almost struck me as incredible that she wouldn't feel strange posting that on a public listserv like that's just a normal thing that we're supposed to you know that women are supposed to accept that <laughs> yeah. they have partners that like you know not, no, no offense to basics. my partner he just yeah. he just doesn't know how to take care of our kids in basic ways yeah um, like waking and feeding yeah right you know who this reminds me of <laughs> I had a very interesting discussion with Gretchen Rubin on the podcast uh-huh. back in January and I did ask her this kind of controversial question because her work is so interesting to me. She does – she's a total habit scholar and happiness scholar, but she never touches on intersectionality. She never talks about race, gender, any of that. So I asked her, knowing that her readership is predominantly women, yeah, you know, 
do you think that we're perpetuating this idea that we're, you know, that women are shouldering the organizational tasks of the work of the the work at home, you know, by talking about her latest book, Inner Outer, or what is it, Inner Order, Outer Calm, Outer Order, Inner Calm, something like that. <laughs> and uh, she said, "Listen, I feel strongly, and I've heard her write about this before, that you you can only control your own behaviors." So she would say that this woman's action is a total adaptation. Instead of trying to persuade her partner to, like, I don't know, parent in a basic way, that this is a totally legitimate, understandable, like, just operate around it. Like, don't try to persuade them. Just <laughs> fix the problem if it bothers you. Then if it bothers you, it's your problem to fix. And I was just, like, a little dumbfounded yeah. by that answer. But I think that's the reality of so much of what is expected. Can you imagine I mean, a husband posting that? Uh, Can you imagine a man posting no, that? What kind of, of grief he not. would get? My well, wife doesn't wake our children or feed them. Like, right, and she also, lock her up, right? right? <laughs> I mean, the other thing is she said, and my husband, he often, he'll often stay up late and he's, he's, um, he sleeps till eight. So I, I might need her to come, you know, a mother's helper to come before. I, yeah. I just couldn't believe the whole thing. I oh, was just sort God. of shocked. But can I, I mean, listen, Yeah. in terms of that scenario and, and what she would say, once you're in it, you're in it, you know? So it's different. There's a right. systems answer and there's an individual answer. Sure. This sure. person got, this person who, who ended up with, uh, you know, we can, we can talk all we want about how, you know, maybe she didn't choose a great partner or she could have chosen somebody who was more, had a more egalitarian approach to parenting or any of that. Right. I think, sure, realistically, unless she's prepared to get up and leave her husband over it, her only right. options if she doesn't actually think she can motivate him to do it are to look for help. But I mean, what a sad state of affairs that you can't yeah. be expected to sort of be able to have a conversation and say, I just, there's not really a question here. I need you to do this. And then you well, this, figure it out. You know what this reminds me of? First of all, thank you for this tangent because I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready to go yeah. down this, this rabbit hole because I wrote my thesis sort of, it was like kind of a thesis equivalent in college in my political Feminism and political theory class. Yep. I took I needed an extension. I wrote this thing all over Christmas break because I just I was like going all a, a beautiful mind in the library posting my like arguments on the windows trying to like make sense of this. <laughs> and the whole premise of this paper was can you reconcile romantic love with gender equality? Because some people would look at this relationship and say, look at that unconditional love she has for her husband. You know, he doesn't need to do anything or whatever. Like, he's got probably got all these redeeming qualities, but she <laughs> loves him anyway. You know, she'll work yeah. around it. And all of us have our shortcomings. And to me, the conclusion of my paper was, no, you cannot reconcile <laughs> unconditional love with gender equity, <laughs> which, like, sent me into yeah. a feminist tailspin for a little while there and landed me in a therapist's office Ooh. examining why I was dating, like, nothing but... <laughs> deadbeat boyfriends for a while. <laughs> That's really funny. Well, but, uh, I, I mean, it's funny that you say that because I don't look at that scenario and say like, wow, that's unconditional love. I look at that scenario and I think, I bet this woman is like exasperated and frustrated and uh, d just feels powerless to do anything aside from just figure out the way to fix it herself. Right, right. Um, but I mean, I, you know, I think there's sort of, this is where the personal is political. It's like, you know, part of me wants to say, of course, you know, women need to, we, we need to expect, you know, straight women who are going to partner with men need right. to expect more of them. 
and you know don't have don't 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 find one as a partner and decide to stay with them if you don't think yeah. that they can they can sort of keep up their part of the bargain um yeah. but i think easier said than done man right easier you know, said than done listen yeah there's also <laughs> yeah. probably not enough of those men for the women who want them there's also <laughs> right. probably you know i mean there's so many complicating factors that yeah. i understand that for some people it becomes, especially in a scenario like that, an issue of just like surviving, yeah. like do what yeah. you can to get through. But I don't, I mean, listen, do I, it, I don't it, think there's anything, I, I don't think there's any excuse for that man. <laughs> right. Fair, 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 fair. I mean, we don't know the full story, not no. to give him too much of the benefit of the doubt. But yeah, I, I hear you. I, I mean, think the way that whole post was worded, I would be horrified. What were the comments like? You know, it's so funny. I have to go back and look because I saw it in the beginning and I was so shocked. I was yeah, like one of the first ones. walked away. Nobody, I didn't even like, I don't think I went back to look. I, I can. I mean, the I drama's mean, in the a, comments. That's I where know. I would hang out in that post. <laughs> You're right. That's where I need to As a to sociologist, be. as a think tank person, you yeah. would, I feel like, learn a lot more to, from the comments. The I do. I need to go do a little anthropological study of yeah. the community actually like. Uh, this online yeah. community actually responded to this kind of well, request. You know what? It's it's no wonder that female friendships have have been put on the back burner because that's the kind of shit women are dealing with. Female friendships <laughs> feel like a luxury. You know what yep. I mean? It feels like an afterthought. I got a call from one of my lifelong girlfriends yesterday in the middle of the workday, and I was a little bit like crazed at the moment because I was rushing between things, but. Just getting that call, you know, I was yeah. like, oh my God, she's thinking of me. And it just, I think there's something about making an effort, even if the calls, like I have a, a girlfriend in the West Coast who she and I have been playing phone tag for, I don't know, eight months. Yeah. We have yet, we have yet to hop on a call together, but I've just called her a few times and she's called me a few times and we just have not really made it happen. But just, I think there's something about the act of attempting to even reach out that yeah. feels somehow important now, even if it, if it does feel difficult to make happen. Right? I mean, definitely. It's, it's the old axiom. It's the, it's the thought that counts. You know, we all understand right. we have hard lives, but it's so nice to know people. I mean, to know that your friends are thinking of you and that they, they're, they're trying to be in touch and they're balancing all the demands of their lives to try to spend some time with you or talking to you is yeah. always nice, even if it doesn't come together quickly. But yeah, you know, it made it's funny. It made me think what you were just saying made me think of I think something I think I said in the piece about how how we actually ought to understand friendships as kind of a, mm. a, a form of resistance to patriarchy in this particular way that women are taught to believe that the most important roles that they play in their lives are kind of in service to to the men in their lives and their children. Mm. And that there's actually something that is, you know, you can think of close friendships yeah. with women as a form of radical resistance to that system and to yeah. to a system that tells women that those are the most important roles and that friendships are something that, that ought to be peripheral to all that. That is real. Yeah. I feel like. You know, Brad, before the pandemic, Brad the Boo, yep. had a weekly Wednesday night wing night with the guys. Yep. And all of us, like, partners of the wing guys are very friendly with each other as well. But we didn't have any equivalent. And that always bugged me. That, like, oh, they have this, like, standing dude night. And 
where is that showing up in my life? So I started a little Friday night hikes, like routine slash ritual with a couple of girlfriends every Friday. We'd cut out of work early if we could, or even if it was after hours, five o'clock, we just, it didn't matter where, when, or how far from home, but just getting out and doing a hike or doing a walk together was like, yeah, this matters to me too. Like I'm going, (laughs) deal with it, figure out dinner on your own. I don't care. You know what I mean? Like there is something a little rebellious about it that feels like you're on your own, dude. You know, (laughs) figure it out when you've got a male partner at home. That certainly feels that way. Yeah, I think I think women are just sort of I think they're just taught that they're, you know, that they're this centrally this caretaker to people. And so the idea of sort of letting people fend for themselves um, and taking care, you know, for for women taking care of their own needs first and taking care of themselves Mm -hmm. and letting others fend for themselves is still something that I think often feels kind of radical. That's so sad, but so true. Yeah. Like, why would I even think fend for yourself is necessary to say, you know, unless by default, I'm taking responsibility for figuring out Friday night meals. You know what I mean? We recently sat down, Brad and I, because our whole balance of domestic labor here has gotten way out of whack in the in the pandemic. Pre-pandemic, I was on an airplane, as you know, like every other week. And I you know, didn't run our household. Frankly, Brad was very much the head of of running our household from a social planning standpoint, from a meal planning standpoint. He did all the grocery shopping and I was like in and out, you know, uh, for, for speaking gigs, which are a thing of the past, I'm afraid. <laughs> and that was pretty cool. Like I really enjoyed that. So now things have completely reversed and we finally sat down after a particularly intense period of like hosting his parents who are newly vaccinated and then my parents and stuff. And I was like, okay, we need to figure this whole food plan out. And we did. We ironed it out. We put it on a project management task thing like Trello. We have a Trello board for our food plan. And we've kind of figured out how we could balance this a little better. But it took me asserting myself and saying, hey, this isn't working for me, and him getting really defensive at first, which I think is a perfectly understandable reaction, and then like 24 hours later being like, yeah, I did some thinking, and I like, I mapped it out on a Trello board. You know, I'm like, great, whatever works for you, babe. I'll get on your system. You know, you don't need to come over to my Asana board or whatever. Like, Trello works for you. Let's use Trello. So now we've got, I feel like hyper organized on this front at the moment, but it is working. We're just a few weeks in and like Monday nights he's cooking, Tuesday nights I'm cooking. And if you don't have your grocery list updated by Saturday, when he goes grocery shopping on Sunday, you miss it, you know? And it's, yeah. it's kind of great. I'm, I'm pleased with it so far. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, this is the, the downside of, of sort of let just letting things devolve to whatever they're naturally going to devolve to is that they typically in and again, heterosexual pairings devolve to the woman. Yeah. So it's like you have to really have an intentionality about that kind of stuff. I'll say it, it is it is um, having a kid definitely makes you have a greater level of intentionality about a lot of that stuff and planning just because there's so many logistical moving pieces all the time. Like mm. we have to sit down, my partner and I have to sit down at the beginning of you know, each week and say, all right, who's taking her, who's dropping her in the morning at school. And we've based on our calendars and he has more uh, early morning stuff. So sometimes, you know, so he takes her every morning. He doesn't have early meetings. 
Um, and I, but we go down and we are very, I mean, we are very intentional that it's somebody that we're, we're doing 50, 50 on it. Um, so that it doesn't become that kind of thing. And that's sort of how we do, uh, food too, a lot of the time. Yeah. It's tricky. You're right. It does take intention. And I don't think 50, 50 is, even an option for most people (laughs) too. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's always going to be some sort of blur or there will be weeks that are better and weeks that are worse, but just having a standing conversation is such a radical act in and of itself. Yeah. Well, and 50, 50 in my mind, when I think about that, I don't, or things being sort of egalitarian, you know, I I think the idea that everything is 50, 50 is silly. That's right. not really how it ever works for people. There's always going to be somebody who gets in the habit of taking out the trash more and somebody who gets in the habit of right. oh, emptying the dishwasher more and somebody, and it doesn't really matter if every, if it, what matters is that generally, you know, you feel like 50% of, of kind of the things mm. that make, make a, a family or a household kind of run mm. are, are you're getting help with. It's not yeah. any in one individual task, obviously. Right. Absolutely. And you, are not just sharing this from personal experience. You also study this. Tell me about, you know, Family Story Project and tell me about what, you know, what the the research has been finding or what you've been doing on that front to really explore how the shifting nature of the American family unit, right? Like this is, we've talked a lot about heteronormative families, but yeah. that's by no means the, uh, the only model out there. No. Well, there, so family story, um, which I founded about six years ago now, almost six years ago. Um, it's really an organization that, uh, I mean, our expertise is sort of around the changing American family, but we're really interested in issues of family privilege by which Mm. we typically just mean the ways that some types of families and some family structures are, um, sort of given, given a set of benefits and um, supports that others are not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the way, for instance, that we, we, t- we tend to think of nuclear kind of nuclear families as sort of the, the top of the food chain. And mm. we think of other families like single parent families and single mothers as sort of, uh, you know, a less ideal situation, not that, um, that type of thing. We think that's a problem. Right. <laughs> so a lot of, uh, what we do is spend time trying to understand um, how to work towards sort of both cultural and political equity, um, mm. sort of a world that kind of values all different types of families and then understands that there's no um, there's no real benefit to that type of hierarchy that we essentially all benefit when we figure out how to support everybody and no matter what their sort of configuration and uh, family type looks like. Um, and I guess, you know, there's no real easy short way to answer the question of like, how everything is changing. It's changing in right. so, so many ways. But, you know, I think the main, you know, if we're talking about kind of some of the primary trend lines over several decades, you know, obviously the kind of decline as of, of what you might refer to as a traditional nuclear family mm. um, is obviously one of them. There's very few households that look like that anymore. There's very few households with one uh, with a breadwinner father and a stay-at-home mother and dependent children in the house. That's like, that's less than one in five houses um, and have mm-hmm. been for a while. Um, whereas, you know, in 1960, that was, that's what, that's what the majority of houses looked like. And it uh, seems like an issue that our public policies 
haven't quite kept up with that, right? They haven't kept up at all. I mean, <laughs> right. not even a little bit. No, I mean, from everything from, you know, being the only, you know, developed nation without without paid family and medical leave policies to the, the the way that we have a whole system of of school that isn't actually doesn't actually have the same hours as our work hours and we don't do anything about that and we don't I mean there's so I mean it's it's hard to even know where to start to be honest but yes our policies are are woefully they're woefully behind because there's so many so many of our policies are still rooted in the idea of um you know a a de- of de- of basically dependence um and a provider and that's just not what families look like anymore. They don't have a a sole provider and dependents who are women and children. That's not that's not the structure. That's not the way it works anymore. And so, um, yeah, a lot of our laws and policies are lagging. I think that's a really, used to be. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really important point that sometimes gets lost in conversations, even here on the podcast, because they're so easy to have. Um, but just conversations broadly, culturally, about how to hack it, you know, how to yeah. make it work in our totally flawed system. It's like you might not have to hack it if we had social safety nets that accounted for the fact that we have dual income earning households now for yeah. the vast majority of us or yep. that single parents are a thing, yep. you know, that should be accommodated. So it's just, you know, I think the self, uh, self-help industry, which t- I totally fall into – can often forget <laughs> that there are systemic solutions. We just don't have them in the U.S. for the most part, and there hasn't historically been political will to make it happen. Do you feel optimistic about these next four years or three and a half, whatever we're down to, yeah. in terms of the potential? I, I, do, I do. I mean, I feel, put it this way, I feel I, I, also, I will always have a cautious, a, a, dose, a dose of sort of, caution when it comes to this, but mm. I certainly feel more optimistic than I have in a long time. I mean, for the yeah. fir- it's the first moment um, in my adult life where there's a conversation about childcare as a piece of national infrastructure. Um, we've never talked, we haven't talked about that way since Nixon, which is kind of a strange history in itself, but you know, uh, so yes, I, I have some hope. I think, you know, we, we might get paid family and medical leave. We, we're, it looks like we're going to have that. I think there, we can do more to expand our childcare infrastructure. I think, um, you know, and I think those things are going to make a huge, huge, huge difference on people's, um, on people's lives. Now, will the world still be optimized for families where one where there's two parents and they're married and one works part-time and one works full-time probably and that's still <laughs> yeah. and that's still a problem because that's still you're still living a, just so many people out with that equation right. um and will we still see you know um unmarried mothers and single mothers as as sort of the problem to be fixed, like probably, I think that's, I think that's, those things are deep. Um, you know, I think in general, um, until we sort of dispense with this idea that all of these problems are individual problems and not sort of collective societal problems, we're in trouble. And it's particularly how we've treated things. I mean, the way that we've treated all caregiving 
um, responsibilities and our need to meet them as individual problems is just pathetic in this country. And I, you know, that we have to have, we have to rethink that in a really, 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 uh, big new way. And, you know, one of the more interesting things when you look at, when you do sort of cross-cultural and cross, and when you look at, especially across different countries and how they handle a lot of, um, issues around a lot of these sort of family policy issues, you know, you see so, first of all, you see very little child poverty in a lot of other wealthy nations, which is not true in ours. Um, and you also just see, you see policies that support children and support individuals without making as many demands on or assumptions about um, what their families look like. So there's, you know, we don't have an unusually high rate of single parenthood um, in the U.S. compared to most of Western Europe, we're we're pretty average. We're actually lower than in, we're lower than a lot of them, um, or or I should say, single. Let's distinguish not not single parenthood, non marital births. The the okay. the amount of children born in the U.S. to an unmarried parent has been steadily at a steady around forty percent for like almost two decades now. 40% of children? 40% of, yeah, 40% okay. of births of children born today are born to a parent who is unmarried. Okay. Um, and it's it's as high, I mean, it, it, it varies, but in Western Europe, that's very standard. Um, mm. It's all over the place. It's, it's you know, it's, it's a little lower in some places. It's up to 60 or 70% in some places, depending on sort of the role marriage plays in different countries. But, you know, what's kind of always been striking to me is that um, countries with, you know, far higher non-marital birth rates than we have in the U.S., um, also have much lower poverty and much lower child poverty. Mm. And, that's that's just a social policy issue. I mean, that is, is literally that we it's don't. It's not a wealth issue. It's no, like, so we don't tie. Yeah, right. Exactly. So it's that we have this sort of way we tie our policies to certain types of, to marriage and certain types of family structures that um, really disadvantage a lot of people. Well, that we culturally deem worthy right. of support, right? Which is so fraught yep. and so backwards. And you're right. Just, you know, thinking about the ways that the, even the Clinton administration back in the day talked about un, unwed mothers, yep. children being born out of wedlock. Yeah, that shit is not that far in the, the rearview mirror, is it? No, I mean, I think we just had the same conversation around child allowances that we essentially had um, around sort of early welfare reform conversations, to be honest. I yeah. mean, the, you know, the sort of old welfare queen stereotypes um, mm -hmm. were recycled when, you know, when Romney proposed a child allowance that didn't have a phase in. So it would go to even the, the, the even families that had no income. Uh -huh. um, and the first thing that all the conservative think tanks sort of did was was jump on it and say, well, no, this will incentivize some women not to ever work. And that's exactly mm. what we said. You know, that's the, that was our excuse for getting rid of welfare as we know it was, well, we can't incentivize some women not to work. Now, of course, mm. we incentivize some women not to work in all sorts of ways already. It just happens that our social policies incentivize 
you know, uh, white married, middle class women, married middle work. class white yeah. women not to work, and that I was going to say, aren't they all grieving the loss of their stay at home wives, like and shaming them for going to work? But that's right. A whole other well, but it's yeah. so interesting that it's like that is a real. I mean, it sort of begs the question of like, well, so who? So I'm sorry, what mothers are supposed to work and what mothers are not supposed to work? It's very clear yeah. that we have a complete double standard because. I mean, we have a tax code that's preferential to families that has one primary breadwinner and one uh, one worker that works less, or you know, either doesn't work or works uh, makes a lot less. Mm. Um, you know, and we certainly don't mind if those women don't work, but you know, it comes to an unmarried woman or a single mother, and there's suddenly this great fear that that well, what if we incentivize? her not to work and of course and people to stay lives, home and take care of her children right. which is right exactly yeah, yeah. Right. well mm. and it's it, it ties into the all the sort of worst worst tropes about you know this is what conservatives essentially a lot of them believe is you know if you don't if women don't have husbands they're going to look to the government as their husband so they mm. need they need a man to support them or else and the taxpayers also, will have to there's them. so much race <laughs> like there's so much intersection of race here as well uh, when it comes to what yeah. yeah. It's all what does a welfare queen evoke, you know, all, when it comes to that. Yeah. yeah it is all yeah. deeply, deeply racist. There is no <laughs> there is no way in which it is not centered on the devaluing of black mothers. It is yeah. it's it's entirely clear. Uh, I mean, very often not even not even made it and people don't even make any attempts to hide it in a lot of ways yeah. who they're talking That's about. True. Um That's- well, Nicole, <laughs> I like that this is kind of indicative of the conversations that we have when oh. we would hang out together in yeah, DC. Were we, were we talking about girlfriends? <laughs> I think we were, yes. And then it, but it, the, this is a perfect illustration of like what an actual convo with a girlfriend, you know, a catch up yeah. looks like, especially one who's so read in on, you know, social policy as it relates to family. So, first of all, thank you for sharing your time and talents with us today. Um, I think it's time to wrap, but. I know there's tons of listeners who are like, damn, I could hear, I could listen to Nicole talk all day. Where can our followers and our listeners catch up with you and the work you're doing at Family Story? Uh, the best place is probably our website, <laughs> which is familystoryproject.org. Nice. And uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Family Story Proj. <laughs> <laughs> the very, the very aptly named Proj because we messed nice. up and didn't get the act. Yeah. Um, okay. I've got bossed up org Facebook. for the same reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I will you link know, to all of those, including, <laughs> totally. I'll link to all of those wonderful things, including your great tweet and the piece that it was inspired to, or that the tweet inspired uh, at WBUR. In today's show notes, uh, Nicole Rogers, thank you again for joining me. This has been a blast. You're very welcome. This has been a lot of fun. As always, you can get links to all of today's show notes and all the great resources we mentioned at our corresponding blog post for this episode, which is bossedup.org slash episode 329. That's bossedup.org slash episode 329. And now it's time for this week's Boss Move of the Week. This comes in from Jen in the Courage Community on Facebook. Boss Up's Courage Community on Facebook has been called the best place to be on Facebook and is really one of the only reasons that I'm still on Facebook. So make sure to join us there if you haven't found us on Facebook already. Here's what she wrote. 
can't wait for Fierce Friday. I literally just hit send on the deliverables for a huge months-long project that has, in most definitions of project, failed. Over budget, over schedule, but a good quality product. As the PM, the project manager, I've borne the responsibilities for the shortcomings, learning experience, shit happens, etc., as well as the immense stress and lost sleep and weekends. I'm lucky that I have a supportive senior management team that also sees this as a learning opportunity and aren't going to give me the boot. I want to celebrate that it's over with them, but I'm currently isolating while waiting for test results, which has put a lot of added stress on them. So I feel like I'd be rubbing it in their faces. So I'm just celebrating it here instead. F yes, I am so relieved that it's finally over. And that relief is fierce enough for me. I just love this kind of a fierce Friday check-in or just a boss move because sometimes the project you're working on, the goal you're pursuing is just a failure. It just doesn't, it doesn't work out, right? And I think there's courage and I think there's radical self-acceptance in looking that failure in the face and saying, yeah, this did not work and it's over with. Therefore, I can move on. I can learn from this. I can accept my imperfections and I can also celebrate that it's behind me. I think that's a really powerful lesson and something I think we should all encourage and normalize. Um, It reminds me of that great book, uh, Mistakes I Made at Work, which is what is it? Who's it by? It's like a anthology of short stories that was edited by Jessica Bacall, I think. Am I getting that right? Yeah, Jessica Bacall. And the book is like all of these high-powered, high-achieving women chronicling huge failures that they had at work. And we're not talking like, oops, I, you know, I am, I'm, I'm, one of my failings is that I work too hard or that I, you know, one of those interview answers. No, these are real failures. And sometimes shit happens. Sometimes that will happen. Sometimes you're going to mess up at work. And there is, I think, courage and, and, and true self-acceptance in saying, yeah, that what, I'm not going to sugarcoat it of just embracing that it didn't work, learning from it, you know, processing it unabashedly with other people, preferably, and then moving on. And and kind of anyone who pretends that that doesn't happen to them has bigger issues going on. And I think we've all been there or we've all worked with those folks in the past. And it can be really hard to trust people who won't look at failure in the face and say, what can we learn from this? And, and call it what it is, a failure. So congrats to you, Jen. Thank you for checking in in the Courage community. It's the perfect place to share an update like that. And I think it's a total boss move to just celebrate that it's over and learn from what you, you know, what you experienced in that unabashed acceptance of complete and utter failure. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that, normalizing that. And I want to hear from you listeners. What is it that you are proud of? What are you feeling like is a total boss move, including accepting and overcoming any failures that you've been uh, experiencing, especially in the last year, almost year and a half now? Uh, I'm excited for the brighter horizons, for the light at the end of the tunnel we're starting to see. And of course, I'm really excited for this next chapter and adventure of being a working mom entrepreneur, I don't even know. It's just a whole new, it's a whole new learning experience. And I feel like a novice uh, all over again, which is exciting and, and terrifying, but also exciting. It's an opportunity to learn. 
And I appreciate all the support that y'all have ever already shown me uh, as we transcend into this next next adventure together. So from my household, Brad the Boo and I, to you, we appreciate you and your kind words uh, and, of course, your advice and or guidance as we navigate this journey. And I'm so looking forward to the interviews we have lined up and the Boss Tip episodes that are coming your way this month, all centered on the theme of motherhood. But, of course, you know, these are inclusive conversations uh, that aren't just for moms by any means. I would love to hear from you, your feedback, your thoughts, your experiences. You can always call into the Boss Up Podcast hotline and leave a voicemail at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. That's 910-668-BOSS or 2677. You can also always send us a note uh, to me and the team here at info at bossedup.org. Until next time, share this episode with the folks in your world who could use it or rate or review us on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping the podcast get discovered by others. And thank you as always, for listening and sharing and rating. It it really means the world to me. Until next time, let's keep bossing in pursuit of our purpose. And together, let's lift as we climb.